to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. My guest on today's podcast has had a glittering career both in academia and finance. Alex Lipton was brought up in the former USSR where he gained a doctorate in mathematics at the prestigious Moscow State University. He then moved to the US and worked for around two decades in senior positions on Wall Street, focusing on quantitative analysis, derivatives and risk models. Alex has held a series of academic posts at the same time, including an honorary professorship in mathematics at London's Imperial College. He is currently a founder, chief technical officer and board member at fintech firm Sela. He also currently holds the posts of Connection Science Fellow at MIT and a professor and dean's fellow at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I'd like to start by asking you um, to expand a little bit on the um, article you've just published in Coindesk, where you say that the financial systems are on their last legs. Why, why do you think they're on the last legs? <clears throat> well, it's, uh, it's a result of long and painful evolution, right? So the um, financial system, as we know it, uh, was created over a period of maybe 150 years or so. And the prior to that, uh, um, the very idea of banking and, and the bank was very different, right? So banks were much more leaning towards a narrow bank, uh, a real bill doctrine and things like that. And then uh, gradually they started to engage more and more in this transformational function, you know, change, um, converting, um, you know, sh- 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 short-term deposits into long-term obligations and stuff like that which is a profitable um, which is a profitable undertaking provided that you can you know manage it properly and then with time you know inevitable crises uh, you know occurred many times over you know like the crisis of 1907 is particularly sort of uh, sticking out and then you know the federal reserve was created and then you know, we'll no, of course, the Roaring Twenties, uh, when the old ideas of uh, converting a banking system into a narrow banking system were put forward, and of course, the banking interests uh, were very strong, opposing clearly, and managed to succeed in keeping things they are. But um, uh, with time, it became harder and harder to maintain this fractional reserve banking environment, right? And so what I see from my part, the interest of full disclosure, I worked for the biggest banks in the world uh, for about 19, 20 years, so, but now I'm not. Uh, so um, from my part, uh, what I see is that uh, commercial banks become more and more narrow by choice and then the central banks become more and more fractional reserve by choice. And both trends are very much at odds with what has been happening in the past and makes the situation quite unstable. That's one aspect. The other let me, aspect... Let me, just, let me just stop you there for a second, Alex. Sure, sure. Just, just, to, um, just to clarify for listeners. So the, the, the idea of a narrow bank you're saying is the kind of the original version of banking where banks were effectively banned from lending out their depositors money and and uh, expanding their 
assets beyond their deposit base. Is that is that the correct? Uh, that is broadly true. And uh, yeah. you know, banned maybe too strong a word, but they did it uh, on their own volition, so to speak. Right. So you know, there was no large scale um, bank lending on you know for long maturities and things like that. Right. Okay, and so now you're saying that the commercial banks, if they could choose, would actually prefer to go back towards a, more of a narrow banking model to, uh, to have less less leverage, and the, but the central banks are pushing them. To, uh, well, the, central you know, bank, of course, uh, of course, pushing them and, and uh, to to stay with the fold of a fractional reserve banking. Yes, yeah. but they themselves, central banks, are moving towards the fractional reserve banking um, modus operandi. That's very interesting. You can see it very clearly if you analyze the so-called excess reserves uh, kept by commercial banks with central banks. And you will see that before the great uh, financial crisis of 2008, uh, these excess reserves were de minimis, right? So it's really... You know, a small sliver of, you know, just spare change, uh, you know, we're talking maybe about $100, $200 billion, nothing to, to worry about. But then after this uh, 2008 crisis, uh, when the quantitative easing took place in earnest, the banks got a lot of uh, funds from the central bank, but they didn't want to lend that. And essentially, the, the funds went back to central bank and stay there, right? So now we're talking about trillions of excess reserves, right? So that's, the, that's the commercial bank side. And then Let they, me ask they, you another question, Alex, sure, at that point. So what, what are the implications of these trends uh, for the overall stability of the financial system? Um, well, it is very hard to, to to come to a definite conclusion because these tendencies, uh, you know, have been developing over the last, uh, you know, 10, 12 years and the, the, the jury is still out. But certainly it's uh, implicit or explicit change of the way banking system operates. And also it uh, puts a great deal of, um burden on central banks because they are becoming you know the lenders and the dealers of last reserves they buy much more of a commercial paper and stuff which they normally would not do and uh, it's very hard on them right so these are super powerful and extremely well informed uh, institutions but they are small Right, say what you want, but just the number of personnel working for, you know, even the Fed, the mighty Fed, is quite small. And hence, just for that reason alone, they're not really capable of evaluating properly everything they're putting on the balance sheet. Right? You see, yeah. So that uh, that is something which is certainly, uh, you know, people need to think about. The other thing, of course, being a relentless push towards uh, the negative interest rates. That's something which we can obviously discuss. <laughs> you know, that deserves a separate question, but I mean... Yeah, I wanted to ask you about ne negative interest rates. Uh, I, I, I certainly want to talk to you about that, but I just wanted to ask you, is it possible to talk in terms of increasing centralization of the financial system since 2008 financial oh, crisis? Oh, yes. Centralization absolutely. at central banks, at, uh, at CCPs, where the derivatives are cleared, and also oh, yes. in, in yes. the largest banks, which are getting bigger and bigger. That's very true. 
all, and it's very perceptive on your part. Indeed, uh, this is a somewhat uh, dangerous uh, trend, in my humble opinion. And by the way, I am expressing my own opinions, uh, you know, no, no one else's, right? So, um, in my mind, uh, the bigger banks became even bigger after the financial crisis. This is particularly obvious in China, but it's also true in the United States where, you know, the usual uh, suspects like the JP Morgans of the world, the Bank of America, my former shop, and a few others grew up enormously. And, uh, you know, some of the competitors disappeared, some of them were acquired, etc., etc. That's one aspect of centralization. And as I said, in, in China, it's much, much stronger than that. And then the other aspect, as you say correctly, is this uh, relentless push towards uh, um, clearing derivatives uh, on uh, CCPs, the so-called uh, central clearing counterparties, right? So that is something which is done by law, and it is considered to be a very good thing. But the problem with this is that if indeed something bad were to happen with a CCP, then the consequences of that would be literally incalculable. Uh, well, uh, the reason why I'm saying it's incalculable is because at some point in my career, I was in charge of building of the entire kind of CCP universe uh, for the purpose of my employer's understanding of uh, what would happen if one of the CCPs would default. And this is a mammoth undertaking, right? So this is a mammoth undertaking, which is exacerbated by the fact that all the CCPs are linked. And this is something which people do not realize until they start to go very, very deep into the weeds. But they are linked... Uh, through, if nothing else, through the common uh, uh, clients, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, this... Um, the same investment banks are the clearing members at all exactly. those CCPs. That's yeah. exactly right. And so default of one CCP would in impact all other CCPs and the consequences would be very bad. That's one aspect. The other aspect is that uh, the distortion caused by the coronavirus is truly unprecedented. And I, I want to separate two things. The coronavirus itself is not an unprecedented calamity. It's a calamity, no question about it. But, uh, for example, the um, Hong Kong flu of uh, 1957 and the Asian flu of uh, 1968 were much bigger pandemics. Right, yeah. so the population was smaller, and the number of uh, dead people was much higher, etc., etc., etc. What and and as a matter of fact, they did not warrant any response from powers that be. There was nothing done by any stretch of imagination to suppress these two, right? But uh, the coronavirus, which is sort of coming from the same sort of stable, if you wish, right? So caused unprecedented reaction of uh, the governments all across the world, this uh, quarantines and stuff like that, which put enormous pressure on the financial system, which put enormous pressure on the clearing houses, which put all the models used to calculate the um, um, initial margins and uh, guarantee funds and things of that nature in question. We really... We really have never tried to stress test CCPs 
to the perturbations we are seeing at the moment. So, 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 so Alex, just to summarize, we, we, we've created something that's extremely complex and extremely connected. So we've created a, a system that is effectively going to require bigger and bigger bailouts each time something goes wrong. Yes, that is sadly true. So what is the, what is the remedy? Well, uh, you know, my personal uh, preference would be to make uh, the entire economy more decentralized. And that's something which we're actively working on with my colleagues at MIT. You know, it's a typical sort of MIT-esque idea of uh, sort of uh, building local uh, communities and things like that. One of my colleagues, Professor Sandy Pentland, is a bold expert in these particular thing. But more specifically for the financial system, I would advocate uh, decentralized finance as much as possible. I would uh, argue that using achievements in blockchain technologies in order to supplement and eventually Central clearing, you know, central clearing uh, in general, and then um, you know other things like that would be very, very beneficial, and uh, that's where I feel uh, one needs to work. But this is, of course, it's uh, you know, it's a mammoth task. It's, it's a kind of generational, generational project. If we're going to do this, it's going to take uh, probably the next decades, if not longer. That is very true, Paul. The only point uh, to make is that even though it is a generational project, we need to start, right? So if we never start, we will never finish, right? So this was very true. And by the way, I will give you an analogy which just occurred to me, but it's it's a very poignant one, if I may say so myself, right? So when uh, in Florence, they decided to build the biggest cupola uh, kind of in, in the Renaissance, right? The biggest cupola since the um, Roman times, right? So they started to build Santa Maria del Fiore, uh, this famous uh, cathedral in Florence, without knowing how to complete the task of building the cupola itself. And so that was actually resolved by Brunelleschi, but uh, by the time he came with his ideas, the foundations and the walls were already there, right? So even if you tell me that we do not see everything or that the existing blockchains are not really up to scratch uh, because they're too cumbersome and, uh, you know, technology is too new, etc., etc., this is all true. I will be the first one to, to sign um, and, and under this uh, statement, but... We need to start because otherwise we will never end. Hmm? Okay, but before we get on, thank you very much for that very interesting analogy. Uh, before we get on to de- decentralization and, and blockchain and all these interesting topics, um, let, let me ask you then about the impact of negative interest rates because you you say that this is potentially, you know, quite critical in in, in terms of the stability of the financial system. Why do you think it's so important? Uh, yes, I mean, look, this brings me back to to sort of to Florence and so on and so forth because the last time interest rates were seriously negative was not even in, in, in during the Renaissance, but in the Middle Ages, right? So in the Middle Ages, negative interest rates were practiced on a large scale in the form of demurrage, which is a sort of complicated concept which we can discuss separately. But enough is to say that it is not an unknown phenomenon, but but very, very rare. And then when the 
in kind of humankind uh, started to expand in all directions and the commerce started to flourish and the age of exploration and all that type of thing, of course, interest rates became uh, quite positive, right? So because this is a reflection of a healthy economy and, you know, things of that nature, right? However, uh, for the last you know, I would say 15 years or so, or even more, you know, we had either pathetically low or outright negative interest rates in countries like uh, Switzerland in particular, they're seriously negative, as well as in Denmark and in a few other countries. And some other countries, they are sort of negative-ish, right? So it's, there is a limit of what can be done by way of uh, pushing interest rates in the negative territory um, when this paper money still exists. In the presence of uh, cash, you know, there is uh, what is called the um, physical lower bound, which is not the zero low bound, but the physical low bound, which by my calculation with a colleague of mine, Professor Mateusz Graselli from Canada, we think it's about like negative 30, negative 40 basis points, something like Right. So if, uh, on the other hand, you know, cash is uh, dematerialized and made digital, then, of course, it's in the eye of the beholder how negative this interest rates can be actually made. But that is a separate thing. Why it is bad for the economy? First of all, if ever they made positive, then, you know, so many um, enterprises would have tremendous difficulties. Right. Because. You know, uh, it is one aspect. The other aspect is that this is a little bit of redistribution of wealth. And uh, obviously, this is done at the expense of savers, you know, pensioners and people on fixed income. That is something which is uh, really detrimental to this uh, strata of the society. Think uh, how to to protect those people who were told and believed that the best way to to, to advance his life is to save for your old age. Uh, you know, like uh, look what happens, right? Yeah. Can I just uh, ask you another question at that point, uh, Alex? So, so I, I, you, you shared some very interesting articles with me, uh, uh, your articles ahead of this call. Um, and one of the things that struck me was when you talked about the the possibility of uh, governments and central banks, you know. Moving fully to digital currency, so you know, maybe we might imagine that in future there's no more paper cash, uh, paper notes, and, and physical cash. Uh, everything's moved to digital. Well, clearly, then that if that enables you know, more severely negative interest rates, that's a tax on on saving. But there are also some potential positives, as, as I understand it, from the the move. You you you, say, you point out with your co-authors that this could lead to more efficient tax collection because everything would be traceable, less money laundering, less illicit payments. Um, but then, of course, you know, people will, will be scared of having their, their cash taxed in that way, I suppose. And, and there's, there's the potential for governments uh, seriously overreaching when it comes to personal privacy. So I'm just wondering, you know, what, what, where you think the trade-off there should be drawn? Uh, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a super interesting question. I myself struggle with uh, finding the proper balance uh, because you described it correctly, right? So that's what uh, we articulated in a number of uh, articles that uh, there are pluses and minuses. Um, and uh, I would say it is very important to um resolve some of those issues at the kind of level of legis- uh, at, at the legislative level 
right? So it's not something which people can discuss and decide upon by themselves, right? The legislature needs to make, uh, you know, people's will in the form of a representatives, uh, you know, known, right? So as far as I'm concerned, I would say that efficiencies probably outweigh drawbacks, except for the fact that it is very important to be able to preserve uh, privacy within limits, right? So you see what I'm saying, right? Clearly, you know, nobody wants uh, terrorist financing and money laundering and things like that. It's obvious, right? So at the same time, nobody wants uh, the every purchase uh, to be known uh, to everybody else and the uncle. So perhaps I would say a cryptography can be properly in order to ensure that, you know, transactions within a certain limit stay uh, anonymous unless there is a very strict, uh, um, very strict, uh, uh, for example, law court uh, request to to, to de-anonymize them, right? So that's one aspect. And then larger transactions probably should not be anonymous. And in fact, they are not anonymous even now, right? So if you come and try to buy a car with cash, you know, the dealer has to report that you... It's nothing illegal in that, but they will have to report that such and so came and paid, uh, whatever, uh, uh, £25,000 pounds in, in cash, right? So that's what's yeah, yes. Um, one other thing that struck me in, in the articles you shared was the idea that um, if central uh, government digital cash or digital currency becomes, you know, takes off and becomes widespread, as a lot of people now think it will, uh, it could replace not just you know, notes, notes and coins, but also a large, uh, a large chunk of government debt markets. In other words, if you're holding treasury bonds or gilts or buns or whatever, these might eventually be kind of rolled into this new digital currency. Um, is that, is that, did I understand that correctly? And if so, what It is a distinct possibility, and in fact, not only us, but people working for the Bank of England have been arguing in you know in this uh, uh, along these lines. Uh, for some time, yes, it is indeed possible, this kind of monetization of debt and stuff like that. But as I said, uh, in my mind, that is secondary because as long as central banks are prepared to deviate from their uh, from their modus operandi of the last uh, 80 or 90 years and become uh, fractional reserve banks uh, as much as uh, they are, now by buying all kind of paper and so on and so forth, this is uh, not as important as it would be if they were strictly staying on the sidelines, uh, playing just the role of the lender of last reserve yeah. uh, for commercial banks, right? Because you see what happens, right? So le- le- let's assume that Treasury decides to sell another $500 billion of debt and the Fed decides to buy it, right? So, okay. Then, you know, if the, even if there is interest, right, so which uh, the Treasury is supposed to pay to the Fed, then <laughs> the Fed, by law, is supposed to send uh, all the excess uh, interest back to the Treasury, right? So it's uh, it's an accounting gimmick to the, the last yeah. degree, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, could you talk a bit about the role of the private sector in developing digital currencies? I know you've, uh, you're currently involved in a, in a private sector project, Sila Money. Um, you, you've written a lot about the introduction of stable coins uh, as kind of pegged uh, as a new form of digital currency that's pegged either to assets or existing fiat currencies. Why do you think this is such a potentially important area of uh, development? Well, it's an excellent question. The answer to your question is roughly it happens by for the same reason as, say, procurement of munitions. Uh, you know, kind of the governments uh, would love to sort of produce uh, all to produce all the munitions in house, but it proves to be impossible, right? So the power of uh, uh, private of the private sector is quite big by way of being able to generate uh, you know necessary things for the uh, for the society and for the government and so my feeling is that it would be much more logical to try and uh, have uh, some sort of private initiatives even though at some point i mean if the entire uh, currency is digitized then of course clearly it's a prerogative of the government right but until and unless it's done you know, private initiatives are well worth uh, uh, trying. And that is something which we do, for example, at Sila Money, where we try to digitize the U.S. dollar. That's the idea which we were putting forward uh, with uh, my MIT colleagues in the form of digital trade coin. Uh, these ideas were picked uh, by Libra as well to a large degree. And... Um, you know, I feel that uh, there is a room uh, for the private sector to offer its services and uh, fulfill um, big gaps in um, in, ex- in the existing uh, financial system. Having said that, for example, in China, uh, you know, right now, in some sense, we already have something like that because Alipay and Tencent are dominating the into landscape there, but now the government is coming with their own uh, digital rimnimbe, and uh, this would be a very interesting competition, and we will see what happens, but make no mistake, you know, money is an ultimate reflection of the government uh, sovereignty, and uh, it is a futile exercise to, to compete with the government in pure monetary sort of issues, if you wish, right? So I, I, I have to then ask you a question about cryptocurrencies. What, you know, what, do, you, what do you then make of the prospects for uh, projects like Bitcoin and similar uh, cryptocurrencies? Uh, I am, um, uh, you know, I, I am very interested in that, even though I'm not a cryptomania by any stretch of imagination. I'm finishing a book with a colleague of mine, Adrian Tricani, which is called Distributed Ventures, Mathematics, Economics, and, uh, you know, and Technology. So I am, in, and I'm teaching classes on this subject. Uh, I taught it at the um, Ecole Polytechnique in Switzerland and at the Hebrew University in Israel and stuff like that. So I'm very interested. But I don't think that Bitcoin would be a substitute uh, for 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 fiat currencies, or in fact, an ultimate cryptocurrency. And the reason is that the reason why I'm skeptical about it is the same why people are so enthusiastic about it. I find 
that uh, Bitcoin monetary policy is very, very rigid and in, in a sense tantamount to central planning. And as we were discussing before the interview, I was born and bred in Moscow <laughs> and I have seen firsthand the consequences of central planning. And I would tell you that uh, capitalism works at all beats its uh, hands and uh, heads and shoulders. So, um, yeah, haven't said that. So it's the in- inflexibility of the of the monetary policy built into Bitcoin, for example, that you I, think, I is, think is, so, is, right. is, is 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 its flaw. I think so. Even though yeah. I'm sure that reasonable people can disagree, and there would be many who would say that this is a great feature. Again, as I said, the reasonable people can disagree. What is undeniably so that Bitcoin is a beautiful uh, technical achievement, and even though. Bitcoin itself uh, is actually an amalgamation of techniques which have been known for about 20 years before it was introduced in 2008. Uh, The combination of all these features, the way it is done, um, is uh, nothing but uh, awe-inspiring. And, and uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time. It's been a fascinating uh, chat, Alex. I'd like to ask you um, to put in perspective, as a you know, for last question. Um, I, 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 it struck me in one of your papers that you know you talk about uh, civilization not being possible without money and banking, but also money and banking not being possible without civilization. So you know, perhaps you could. Uh, we're obviously we we can't necessarily place ourselves in 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 history, but you know, how important is what is what's going on at the moment in the in in terms of historical development, both for the financial system and more broadly for society? I think that we are at the inflection point, and the next uh, ten to twenty years would be decisive in the in deciding where the society as a whole will go. I am optimistic, you know, because being pessimistic, you know, <laughs> it's too frightening a perspective. So, but um, I think that advancement in my uh, in money would be extremely helpful to foster further advancement in uh, social uh, developments, and which is badly needed because right now the society is suffering from too many afflictions and hopefully uh, you know it will become going forward uh, more equitable fairer and uh, development of new money ideas would help in my in my and opinion. and and, and uh, at an international level you know, in fostering cooperation rather than conflict between governments uh, very true very true i think that it the time has come to think about additional reserve currencies which probably can be based on some of the ideas which uh, we put forward at MIT, you know, kind of going back, uh, all the way back down the memory lane uh, to 200 years of British economic developments, you know, people from the early um, 19th century who were arguing for, um, you know, uh, asset-backed currencies, you know, then people like uh, John um, Maynard Keynes, uh, people like Caldor, all of them, you know, uh, coming from these uh, fine shores. And um, I think it might very well be that technology combined with uh, new ideas can bring uh, additional reserve currencies, which will foster rather than uh, um, prevent uh, international cooperation and uh, trade. Alex, thank you very much for a fascinating chat. Pleasure, Paul. Thank you very much. Goodbye. 
Thank you for listening to this new Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. Money is changing fast. It's moving more quickly and cheaply. It's becoming more intelligent and more transparent. At the same time, it's becoming more complex and for many of us, more annoying. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so in two ways. On the right-hand side of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com, you can find a link to our Patreon account, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash newmoneyreview. There you can make a regular payment to support us. Or if you'd like to make a donation in cryptocurrency, you can find our Bitcoin and Ethereum addresses also on the right-hand side of our homepage.